So here now the very word of God as it is given to us, first of all, in Psalm 118, reading verses 25 and 26, and then jumping to the sixth chapter of Luke to a passage that we've already looked at. We're going to be in the sixth chapter, verses 27 through 31. First from Psalm 118, save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And then from Luke 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. I mean, the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Our dear Lord, as we consider the scene that will be in our minds this morning of the triumphal entry and the beginning of the, the week of his passion. Lord, I pray that the name of Jesus will be exalted. That as we look both at the triumphal entry and at what it means to come in the name of the Lord, that we will put the two together and we will recognize that we are seeing the most extraordinary human being who is not just a human, but also God incarnate. And he's our Lord. He's our master. He's the one we follow. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who provides us with his righteousness. Lord, may we worship him this morning. May every heart exalt him and praise you from the bottom and the essence of their souls that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us and to live a triumphal kingdom life. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to do things a wee bit differently this morning, so let me kind of explain to you how, I, how we came about this. I think it'll help put it into its perspective, um, because uh, we're going to look at two different passages, and as you might imagine, since this is Palm Sunday, my mind drifted towards the triumphal entry, and I began to think about that and meditate on the passages that surrounded that. And at the same time, I couldn't pull my mind away from Luke because we've been studying the sixth chapter of Luke and these amazing principles that Jesus has given us, the illustrations that go with those principles, and then the golden rule. And I couldn't get past the feeling that I had left something out. There was just something nagging at me that I hadn't completely dealt with those issues. And so then as I began to think more about that triumphal entry, and I began to pick up that phrase of exaltation, the exuberant praise that was going on when they shouted out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I began to ask myself, well, what exactly does it mean to come in the name of the Lord? And then all of a sudden I realized what it means is exactly what Jesus is telling us in Luke 6. What he's been revealing to us as these impossible commands for us to keep. What he's doing is he's revealing his nature. 
He's revealing who he is. And because he's the son of God, he's also revealing God's nature. And so he is revealing what he did in his life through his perfect active obedience. And I'm going to explain what the active obedience of Christ was and what the, what the passive obedience was. But in doing so, we get a glimpse We get this beautiful glimpse into not just the nature of our Lord, but the nature of God himself. And I hope to bring that out. And I hope that what we can do this morning is simply to exalt the Lord Jesus. I want it to be all about him. We've gone through these passages already. We've looked at them from a human point of view and how we can't keep it. Well, this time on this morning, on this Palm Sunday, I want to exalt the name of Jesus. I, I, I want to, to, to reveal his nature and what that nature has meant to us. I realize that's kind of a tall order, so let's kind of jump in. What I'm going to do here, we're going to start out in the 118th Psalm, then we're going to switch to Luke 6, then we're going to go back to the 118th Psalm, and then we're going to go back to Luke 6. And you're going to have to listen at the beginning especially. And some of you might think this is a little technical, but I want to set the groundwork, and, and, and I, want to, I want you to see what I'm thinking about as we go through this. Let's start in the 118th Psalm. Psalm 118 is a very complex psalm. There's a lot of things going on there. It has been used many times, heavily quoted in the New Testament. Sometimes in some parts of the psalm, there's a whole crowd who's talking. At other times, there's an individual who is talking, and you can't really keep up with which is which. Now, it is what is known as an Egyptian Hallel psalm. That's a praise song, hallelujah song, if you will. Because the Psalm 113 through 118 are psalms that praise God for the release from Egypt, the, the, the end of that slavery. But then we're also going to read in the psalm that it talks about an exuberant festal procession going into the temple. So it's kind of like it starts with the beginning of the Israelite nation and brings them all the way through to the time of a praise and glory in the city of Jerusalem. Now, we, we read, and sometimes there's a whole throng going in, and like I said, at sometimes there's an individual. And, and we hear words like this, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That sounds a lot like David, doesn't it? In fact, Calvin is certain that David wrote this song, although there's no ascription. But whether it was written by David or not, it certainly is referring to David. David is leading a festal procession into the city of Jerusalem, obviously for the purpose of worship. Now, it was sung again years later after the exile. In fact, some people think it was written after the exile, but I don't think that it was. It was sung by Ezra when they came back and they were rebuilding the temple. From Ezra 3, we read this, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's right out of Psalm 118. So we know they're singing this song at the time that they're reestablishing the temple and temple worship. But the main um, aspect of this psalm is that it is messianic. It speaks of the Messiah. And everyone knew that in Jesus' day. I mean, they were very well aware that Psalm 118 was a messianic psalm. So 
when this prophet that everyone had heard about, Jesus, he had been in hiding for a while because after he raised Lazarus from the dead, they wanted to take him into custody then, but he, he wanted to wait till the Passover because that's what's going on now. And so all of a sudden, Jesus appears again and a massive throng is following him and he he comes over the top of the Mount of Olives and begins to descend down through the Kidron Valley. Well, everyone's thinking what we think. We read it every single Palm Sunday from Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Well, when the people saw Jesus come over the crest of that mountain on that donkey, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, they just exploded. They exploded in messianic fever. And they began to pull the branches off of trees and lay it down before them and palm branches and their cloaks. And Jesus came into the sound of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's right out of Psalm 118. In other words, everything that Psalm 118 says, they saw in Jesus coming down and they just exploded. Now, you, you, you may look at that and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Psalm 118 says, save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Where is the Hosanna in that? Well, the, the save us in Hebrew is Hoshiana. And so therefore, they're saying, save us, save us. This is the one who has come in the name of Yahweh to save his people. What a tragedy. How close they are to understanding what is going on and how far they miss it. You see, they stopped. Brothers and sisters, this, you hear me all the time talking about how important it is to let Scripture speak to us. Instead of telling scripture what we want it to say, instead of reading into it, well, the reason they stop here, the reason they don't go on is because they're listening to their rabbis and they are reading into scripture what it is saying rather than letting scripture speak to them. Because if they let scripture speak to them, they would have figured it out. Because in this same psalm earlier, we read, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Well, the builders who are rejecting the cornerstone who is Jesus, who is the foundation of the kingdom of God, the ones who are rejecting him are their leaders and them, they themselves, I guess is the way you would say it. And so therefore they missed, they completely missed what was going on. And of course, if they had even thought about what Isaiah said, if they had listened to what Isaiah said about the Messiah, they would have understood Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. There's no way they could have read that and applied it to the messianic happening that was in front of them without seeing this man did not come to lead us from the Romans to do like Moses did and lead us out of Egypt to lead us out from under the oppression of this tyranny. He came to save us from our sins. 
All they had to do is continue to read in Zechariah. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And yet they missed their time of visitation because they weren't looking for the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. The triumphal entry is a tragic example of reading into Scripture what you wanted to say. But where my mind was going with this is, well, what was actually happening? What was the reality? Okay, God brings this about. We know he ordains all things. And he could, here comes Jesus. And the whole crowd cries out, Hosanna, right out of 118, which we know is a messianic psalm. So what, what is actually going on? What is the actual occurrence that is happening here? Well, that's when my mind went to Luke 6. Because I kept going over and over in my mind, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In reality, what does that mean? What does it mean to come in the name of the Lord? Well, we know that when we talk about the name of someone, we're talking about the very essence of someone. So what does it actually mean when that keeps being repeated over and over again? Well, then I went back to Luke 6 and I said, wow, do you know what Jesus is doing there? Not only is he telling us what the kingdom life is. But he is revealing his own nature because he is the word who became flesh. And he was in the beginning with God and he was God, according to what John said. And so he came not only to tell us how to live, but he never would have asked us to do anything that he wasn't going to do himself in his perfect active righteousness. So he's revealing himself to us. He is showing us the very nature of the Messiah. And at the same time, he's showing us God. He's showing us the nature of God. And that's what is so amazing about this. So let me take you back to Luke. All right? Let's go back and let's see if this indeed is the nature of the Messiah and the nature of God. What is he telling us about himself? Well, he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So in other words, there's two things going on here. As Jesus rides into town, as he rides into the town of Jerusalem, he knows that what waits for him is the cross. He is in the midst of what is known as his passive obedience. His passive obedience was the fact that it was the, the, the foreknowledge and the ordaining of God himself that Jesus would go to the cross and die for the sins of those who would believe in him. That was his purpose. That's his passive obedience. But at the same time, Jesus is revealing to us just a wee bit of what it means to be the Messiah and the kind of, of active obedience. We talk about Jesus having a perfect life all the time. And we know it's important. To us, but he wants us to see exactly what is entailed in having a perfect life. You see, this is what I left out. We, we talked about how impossible it was for us to keep these, and I forgot the fact that this is actually revealing the very nature of who Jesus is, and so that is why I want to delve deeper into this. Now, let's go back a little bit if we can. To Psalm 118. 
Because we are going to see what it actually means to be Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. First of all, I want you to see that that whole aspect of coming. That Jesus came in the name of the Lord. Well, Jesus made it clear. We've talked about this quite a bit in the study of Luke. That he is the apostle from heaven. He is the sent one. He's the first apostle. He's not like the apostles he left behind. They were sent by him. But Jesus has been sent by the Father. And he made that absolutely clear. John 8. I came from God. I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And so he begins to talk about the fact that he has been sent in the name of the Father. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. He goes on and says, the works that I do in my Father's name, bear witness about me. So what does it mean to come in or be sent in the Father's name? Well, we know that when we talk about a name in Scripture, we're talking about the essence of that person, all that they are, everything wrapped up into one. And the one who comes in the name of someone else, in this sense, God, the one who comes in the name of God comes as his representative, comes to bear his purpose and his will, comes reflecting the exact the, 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 the essence of who that is. And of course, we know that's exactly what Jesus told us about himself. Remember what he told Philip? He said, whoever's seen me has what? Has seen the Father. Because you've seen me, the Father, and I are one, he says in John 10. He explains that. The, the writer of Hebrews says that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Paul says in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is the apostle. This is the sent one. And when he comes, the people cry out and say, save us. Hosanna. Savior has come in the name, the essence, on the task of the Father. And we know that that's who Jesus is. Jesus came to save us. He, he's our Savior. John the Baptist took one look at him and said, what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He didn't have to think about it twice. The angel who came and talked to Joseph to explain Mary's pregnancy said what? You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He came as a sacrifice. To sacrifice himself. To be the substitutionary atonement for those who put their trust in him. In fact, Paul even goes as far as to call him our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus himself said that the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. So Jesus fills the bill. I mean, they're saying correctly when they say, Hosanna, save us. Because Jesus came to save, not in the way that they thought, but to save us from the age-old problem of our own sinfulness and separation from God. Well, it goes on and they say, save us, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name 
of the Lord. Blessed is he. That is not exactly the same word that we looked at earlier in the Beatitudes, but it's kind of close. It's the same word that Jesus says when you are to bless those who curse you. It means to bestow a blessing upon, and it's a participle that means it goes on and on. It's a continual blessing on the one who has come as the representative and to bear the very essence and witness of God himself. How could he do that? Well, You see, Jesus wasn't just another prophet. He just wasn't another person telling us what God has revealed to him. He is God incarnate. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the one that the angel again said, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is who Jesus is. He, he, he is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. And God incarnate has come to save us from our sins. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Exalt his name forever and ever. We will spend an eternity, if you're his, praising God for his Son, Jesus Christ. It is glorious that... That is who he is, and that is what I want to reveal this morning. I want to reveal Jesus Christ to you, and I want to reveal this extraordinary revelation. Once again, this is kind of the the way that I came about this, is that once I began to think about what it meant to Come in the name, in the essence of, in the very nature and character of God. I recognize that when Jesus is teaching us about a triumphal kingdom life, what it means to be a kingdom dweller, the way that we are supposed to live in a kingdom context, he's giving us something we can't do, but he's describing what he will do, his active obedience. And it is is his active obedience, brothers and sisters, without it, you don't go to heaven. I'll explain that later. That's really important. His act of obedience is hugely significant. And so therefore, what I want to do is I kind of want to switch on back to Luke. And I want to look at these principles and illustrations and the golden rule again, but this time entirely from Jesus' point of view, entirely from an exaltation of our Lord, entirely in praise and glory and honor to the only one who truly deserves it, which is our Lord Jesus. No other man in history has revealed what it means to love your enemies like Jesus. Jesus said, love your enemies, but he's the only one who actually did it. When he's riding into that town, that Jerusalem, he's riding into a nest of enemies. You know that, don't you? You know that he's riding into a bunch of people who are at enmity with God. That means that they hate God. David said this a thousand years earlier when he said, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's the group that Jesus is now riding into town for, a whole group full of enemies, and yet... We know why he's riding into town. He knows why he's riding into town. We know what's going to happen to him. The greatest expression of love that this planet has ever seen 
is when Jesus went to the cross and died with the sins of those who believe him on his shoulders, paying an infinite and eternal punishment so that we might go free. That's the greatest representation of love that any of us ever ever seen. And he did it to a bunch of people who were his enemies. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus exemplified for us in perfection what it meant to truly love your enemies. He goes on and says to do good to those who hate you. In fact, we looked at that and said do good. Do something that is going to be beneficial to those who are actively ongoing hating you. And you know what came to my mind when I thought of that? There were so many examples. But I thought about the night that Jesus spent with his disciples and had that last supper with them. We'll celebrate the Last Supper on Good Friday in just a few days. But when he had that supper with him, he got up from the table afterwards. You know, remember, he took off his cloak, taking on the guise of a slave. And he took that bowl of water and he went and he kneeled down in a, in a statement of un, incredible humility. And he kneeled down and he washed the feet of each one of his disciples. That is to do good to them. But brothers and sisters, I remind you that one of those 12 disciples was Judas, the one who in just a few minutes is going to go and betray him to the Sanhedrin and to the Romans and lead him to the cross. The one who was stealing from him, he washed his feet. That's what it means to do good to those who hate you. Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Well, I, I, I think that he actually expressed a greater love than that when he not only died for his friends, but he took on their sins. He took the punishment, an eternal punishment for each and every one of our sins. And God poured his wrath down upon him on that cross. And he went through that and he died in that way. Not just for his friends, but for those who hated him. Those who were reviling him. Those who were his enemies. Those who rejected him. Who would later come to know him and be changed by the Holy Spirit. While they were in the midst of hating him. He did the most amazing good that anyone can do. He died and paid for their sins. He goes on to say that. Bless those who curse you. If there was anyone who was cursed his whole life, it was Jesus. Well, actually, his ministry is what we have the record of. But he was insulted and berated and cursed more times than you can count. They called him a drunkard and a glutton, a sinner and a madman. They accused him of working miracles by the power of the devil. They called him a liar and a lunatic and a Samaritan. They said he was a blasphemer. They insinuated that he was conceived illegitimately. They mocked him and spit on him and nailed him to a cross. And when he was on the cross and he wouldn't come down, they cursed him. Even the two thieves that were on either side of him, Matthew tells us, reviled him, cursed him. And yet, in just a few minutes, he will bless one of those thieves beyond the concept of blessing. 
He will tell that thief that because of the regeneration that my spirit has done in your heart, even as you hang and die on this cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. Brothers and sisters, that's blessing the one who curses you. Because he was reviled by that same man on that cross while he is suffering in that way. And finally, as far as these principles go, we are told to pray for those who abuse us. Wow, they're abusing you. Jesus knew when he's riding into town on that donkey, he knows he's headed into abuse. And yet, as he comes down the side of the Mount of Olives, Luke tells us that he wailed. He wept almost uncontrollably for those who were rejecting him. Very similar to what Stacy just sang, crying out to Jerusalem, oh, if you only would know who I was. In fact, he said in a quasi-prayer, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes because you did not know the time of your visitation. He wailed because of their collective um, their collective unbelief and the abuse that is getting ready to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know that prayer. He sweat blood. He was so anxious about the abuse that he's getting ready to go through, not just at the hands of the Romans, but at the wrath of God. He knows that. And yet he prays to his father, if there's any way that this cup can possibly pass from me. But then he states that incredible, immortal statement, not my will, but your will be done. Brothers and sisters, that's the passive obedience of Christ that will lead him to the cross. That's what it means to pray for those who are getting ready to abuse you. But there's no greater example of that, I think, than when Jesus is actually on that cross. When he is gasping for breath. When he is getting ready to take on the sins in that, those three hours of, of holy darkness. And the people are throwing things and spitting at him and mocking him and cursing him. And he cries out to his father, Father, forgive them! For they know not what they do. That, brothers and sisters, is what it means to pray for those who abuse you. No man has ever done that. That's what it means to follow the active obedience of Christ. Well, he goes on, and he says, when someone hits you on your right cheek, turn the other one as well. Now, when we looked at that, we noticed that several things were going on. Um, one of them is that Jesus is kind of explaining what's going to happen because it had been prophesied to be so. Again, going back to um, um, Isaiah and going back and seeing that what Isaiah says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So when Jesus went to his trial and he stands before Annas and that guard slaps him in the face, Jesus doesn't retaliate. Oh, he says, there's an injustice here. Explain to me what I did wrong. But there was no retaliation. There was no vengeance on his part. Later on, when he's standing before Caiaphas, he doesn't say a word to anyone until they adjure him by the living God to answer. And then he condemned himself in their eyes. Jesus was that lamb who was silent before those who, who abused him. But... 
You know, one of the things we, we talked about in, in that particular one of those illustrations was that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The vengeance recompense is not the recompense of, of our responsibility, nor was it that of Jesus. Because actually what Jesus said is that the Son of God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Then he went on to say, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Oh, there's recompense. Oh, there is vengeance. There is judgment. But no one is happy about it. God least of all. Because it's the rejection of people when they reject Jesus. They're given the opportunity to believe in Him and follow Him and accept Him as their Savior. And they throw it away. And there's recompense when that happens. A horrible, terrible recompense. He goes on to say, from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Oh my goodness, what a picture we are given of this. What an amazing picture Jesus, of course, had a cloak and he had a tunic. And when he stood before Pilate again, he could have easily argued his way out of it. He didn't do it. He turned him over to the Roman soldiers to beat him. And they took off his cloak. And they put one of their own on. They, they put a, a mocking cloak, a, probably the red cape of a Roman soldier, a purple. And they, they laughed at him and they called him the king of the Jews. And then they stripped that off of him. You need to remember something, brothers and sisters. We are talking about the incarnate God here. We are talking about the one who made the universe. We are talking about the one that had simply raised his finger and a legion of angels would have come and wiped that entire place off the earth. And yet he didn't. Do you know what he allowed? He allowed them to take his tunic. To strip him. And then to give him a cross and to make him walk through town in that ultimate shame as people were calling out his name and saying, you fake, you phony, you said you were the son of God and you can't even save yourself. Naked he walked through town. Naked he was nailed to the cross. And there he stood as they hurled insults at him. Brothers and sisters, that's what it means to give your tunic. That's what it means to be shamed before the world. That's what it means to trust the Father and Father for everything in your life. Oh my goodness, how arrogant and entitled we are. That's our model, folks. That's our Lord. That's, that's the, the kingdom life that He is living <laughs> ashamed, open, naked before the world, dying on a cross. That is what he did. And that's what he calls us to when he says, pick up your cross and follow me. Now, brothers and sisters, that is Jesus accomplishing the passive obedience of his father. Dying on a cross so that your sins might be forgiven. He goes on and says, give to everyone who begs from you. He did this a lot, you know. 
You know, we read the stories of his healings, especially the little summations like that Luke gives us. When we see that he healed in the morning in the synagogue and then they lined up at his house, at Peter's house. And there was a whole bunch, the whole town was there and he heals them. And you think that that doesn't exhaust him or wear him out. The very next morning, there's another line there wanting to be healed. This happened his entire life. People were begging him. And he healed those who begged him. Probably no better story of this than when he went up to Tyre and Sidon with his disciples. And a Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite, a pagan, began to chase after him, begging him to to heal her daughter. And the disciples were aggravated. And they said, would you get rid of this woman because she is bothering us? She's creating a disturbance. And just send her away. And then Jesus said some of the harshest words to her. He said, I came to save the lost sheep of Israel. And it wouldn't be right for me to take the bread of the children and throw it to the dogs. And she said, even the dogs get the scraps from the table. And so taken was he by her faith. That he healed her daughter. He, he gave freely to the one who begged from him. In fact, he tells each one of us, if you're going to come to me, you're going to have to come as a beggar, blessed are the poor. Because they're the ones who will have the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones who know what it means to beg for salvation and beg for righteousness because we can't do it on our own. The only way you're going to get to Jesus, the only way your sins are going to be forgiven is if you're begging for him to be your Lord and Master. Jesus knew what it was to give to those who begged him. And finally, at least for this part of it, from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, several ways I can see that being fulfilled. First of all, that means we're now, now we're talking, we're in the realm of somebody stealing your stuff. And we talked about, you know, if, if you go and, and you try to get your stuff back, or, or if you try to sue people, Paul said sometimes it's better just to be defrauded because you've got kingdom work to do. And if you get all wrapped up in that, you're going to, you know, be so broiled, embroiled in the world, you're not going to do the kingdom work. Well, Jesus was stolen from. We know that because we're told that Judas was actively stealing from them. Judas was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But that's not all Judas stole. Judas stole Truth. He he stole instruction. He stole intimacy. He stole love and affection and emotion. When he betrayed Jesus in the garden, Jesus said, Judas, do you betray me with a kiss? Do, Do you mock me and the love that I've poured out on you by betraying me with a kiss? But brothers and sisters, I think it's that underlying Focus on the task that that is more significant here. Jesus was focused on his task. He knew what his business was. He knew what his life was. He knew what he came to do. And so when he's 12 years old and he ends up in the temple and his parents come and say, how can you treat us this way? What did he say? I must be about my father's business. I know what that business is. I know what that task is. And I'm not going to allow myself to be diverted. And boy, did the devil try to do that. 
When he got him in that desert and he tempted him three times, you remember what he was trying to do is to get him to be the same kind of Messiah that everybody was expecting. Oh man, just bow down and worship me and look at all the kingdoms of the world. They're all filled with people. You came to save them, I can give them to you. Oh, they're going to think you're great. Jump off the top of this temple. Your father will have to send his angels. Everyone will see it. And you will be the kind of Messiah that everyone is looking for. And when they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you'll fit the bill. All you have to do is just deviate just a wee bit. Just change your course a little bit. But Jesus didn't do it. He stayed on task. And that task was the passive and active obedience to his father. But you know the one that really gets me is that golden rule. That last one. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And when we talked about that, we talked about the infinite number of possibilities there are to do good to people, things that you like to have done. There's no restriction to it. And so therefore, that is an absolutely impossible law for us to keep. It is the summation of the law and the prophets, which is the entire scriptural revelation, as Matthew tells us, and we can't keep it. So therefore, it becomes a spiritually defined and infinitely thin line. And anyone who either in their omission or commission do not in every second of every day from the time they're born to the time they die do unto others exactly what they would like done to them then you fall on the wrong side of that line. That's a command. It is not a suggestion. There's judgment on that side of the line. So in other words, on that side of the line, on the wrong side of the line, is every single soul who has ever lived. Except one. And that's Jesus, you see. He's the one who kept it perfectly. He's the one who kept every single one of these principles, these illustrations of this golden rule that he has told us this is what it means to live a triumphal uh, kingdom life. He's the only one in history who lived a triumphal kingdom life. So he stands alone on this side. That is so hugely significant. You say, why is it significant? What does it mean to me? Why is it important to me? Well, I told you earlier, unless... Jesus stands on that side of the line with his active obedience intact and perfected. You don't go to heaven. You say, wait a minute. I thought all I had to do was love Jesus. All I had to do was, you know, believe in him and my sins are forgiven. Yes, absolutely. Love Jesus and your sins are forgiven because he's the only one who can forgive your sins. That's his passive obedience. That wipes you clean. That means that you have been redeemed from, from your sinfulness. But guess what? You're still a sinner. You're a redeemed sinner, you're a forgiven sinner, but you're still a sinner. And a sinner will never stand in the presence of God, ever. And so the only way that you're ever going to stand in the presence of God is if you have perfect righteousness. And that's why Jesus lived the perfect life. That's his act of obedience. That's why it is so important. You impute your sin to Jesus on the cross. He pays for him. Those sins are forgiven. Jesus imputes his righteousness back to you. And so now you're declared righteous. You can stand in the presence of a holy God. And he looks upon you and he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. And you can have perfect reconciliation and perfect relationship. You have been given a gift, 
a great gift. Not only through his passive obedience, but through his active obedience. Praise God for his son, Jesus Christ. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who won your sinlessness because you're forgiven through his, through his passive obedience. And blessed is the one who came in the name of the Lord and won your righteousness through his active obedience. But that's not where it ends. I told you that I really wanted to do this morning was to exalt Jesus. I really wanted it to be about Jesus and not about us. And I hope I've done that, but there is something that I need to say. It was never intended to stop there. That's not the end product, you see. Jesus didn't give you this amazing gift of righteousness through his act of obedience so that you can just simply tuck it away and gloat over it and hold it inside. Now, there's a reason for this. When Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world, and don't put that light under a basket, but show it out into that darkness so the world can see it. You see, Jesus came. We think that's just the gospel. It is the gospel that's important, but it's not just the verbal expression of the gospel. It is the kingdom life that you lead. There's a light that Jesus has put in you, and you have the ability through your redeemed self to at least strive after the triumphal kingdom life. You'll never reach it in this world, but you strive for it. And when you strive for it, there is a difference in you. There's an otherworldliness in you that attracts people. Sinclair Ferguson, the great Scottish scholar, wrote a book. Devoted to God's church, Brother Freddie gave me a copy of it. It's a great book. We're probably going to pass it out to all of our new members because it talks about what the church of Jesus Christ really is. And, and, and he reveals something that was of particular interest to me because we're studying the book of Acts. He said, if you look in the book of Acts and you look at their evangelistic outreach, it's not. It's inreach. <laughs> he said, in other words, what's happening in the book of Acts, what's happening in the early church is their otherworldliness is so evident. They're selling everything that they have. They're obliterating poverty within themselves. They're healing the sick. They're taking care of orphans and widows. They're living out their life. There is a, there is a, a visible difference in that church and people are attracted to it. They didn't have to go out. People were coming to them. Why? Because they were living the kingdom life and it was evident. You see, there was an otherworldliness. People were saying, what happened to you? You're different. You're not living the same way that you used to. You have different uh, ethics and different focus, a different perspective. What has happened to you? Whatever's happened to you, I'd like to know about it. And so people are asking to be told about Jesus. Somewhere along the line, the church got the idea that what we need to do is act like the world. That in order to reach a fallen world... We've got to be as fallen as we possibly can. Well, I think that the exact opposite is what's being expressed here. So I want to leave you with a question. I don't mean this irreverently, so hear me out before you pass judgment. But has anyone said to you or of you, blessed is he or blessed is she who comes in the name of the Lord? And you say, wait a minute, I'm not Jesus. That was Jesus going into, you know, the, the, the Jerusalem. And, and I know that's Jesus. And I'm not comparing you to Jesus. In fact, that's the reason I left out the Hosanna purposely. 
But when I talk about coming in the name of the Lord, I mean coming in the essence of the Lord. I mean coming as his ambassador. I mean coming and reflecting the Lord. You see, Jesus came in the name of his Father and it was evident to everyone because of the otherworldliness of his life. Has anyone said that about you? Blessed is he or blessed is she who comes in the name of the Lord because I can take one look at them and I can see Jesus in them. The kindest thing that anyone can say to a pastor at the end of the sermon is I saw Jesus in that message. The kindest thing that anyone can say to a believer is I see Jesus in you. So the question I have for you on this Palm Sunday is just that. Do people see Jesus in you? Do you strive for that triumphal kingdom life? You'll never achieve it as Jesus did. You know that. But if we strive for it, if the church, not just for our own personal piety, but so that we can make the impact on the world around us that Jesus intended for us to make. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And sometimes I think we're all sitting with baskets over our lives and people don't even know we're Christians. So we need to let the light shine. So that when people see you, when people see me, they say to themselves, blessed is God for the one who comes in his name. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the challenges you give us. We know that we, we can't live up to this one. We know that. But you've called us to try. You've called us to do our best. You've called us to live triumphal kingdom lives as best as is possible for our redeemed selves, living in this sewer of a world that we live in. And having our old self, the old man, the old woman, to fight constantly. Lord, help us on that fight. Help us to reflect you. Help us not just as individuals, but this church, this school. May we be the light that you want us to be. May we be those that people say, I saw Christ there. I experienced Christ there. I knew that Christ was there. I saw it in their eyes. I saw it in their actions. I saw it in how they lived and what they said and what they did. Lord, may we truly be a blessing to the world because people see Christ in us. In whose name we pray, amen.